And welcome to True Stories of Tinseltown. And today, my goodness, we are going to be talking about a house. And not just any house, not the Blooms, not not Mr. and Mrs. Smith, nobody else's. We are talking about Errol Flynn's house. And the name of the book is Errol Flynn Slept Here. And uh, the author is my fave and five-time now guest, Robert Matson. So welcome, and thanks for coming on to talk about this, because I totally love this book. Wow, thanks, Grace. Um, five times. I, it's like a, a new personal best, and it's very much appreciated. <laughs> and I love having you on. You know your stuff. You write some fun stuff. This is a f- kind of fun and sad and all, all this kind of stuff book. But it's. I would tell you guys to check it out. Also, you have an Errol Flint and... Olivia de Havilland book out. And they, these were written, so Robert, you know, he wrote this about, I think he wrote it uh, 2009, it was uh, first released. You can get it on Kindle, same with Aeroflynn and Olivia. But, two, well, let's start with the story. So, why don't you tell us about how Aeroflynn got his groovy, debauched bachelor pad on Mulholland Drive? Okay, so... <clears throat> I'll start with my personal experience with the house and work backwards. So, Okay, yes, because you did start there. I yes. love those pictures, by the way. Yes. So in 1987, in March of 1987, I was in Hollywood working on my first, uh, my first book, which was about Carol Lombard. And I was, I interviewed Robert Stack and, and, did some other work at the academy and whatever. And I had been fascinated with Flynn since my college days when I saw Robin Hood on the big screen and read My Wicked, Wicked Ways. And I wanted to see his house on Mulholland Drive, which was notorious then. He talks all about it in his book. And so um, my wife at the time, my then wife, and I went up there. And she, it, it was vacant at the time. And she dropped me off, and I went through a gate and all the way around the house and, and just looked and looked and looked and was fascinated by it uh, and smelled dry rot, which just told me that this place was in trouble. I mean, it was empty, and, and I was fast, so fascinated that another friend of mine and I went back and saw it again. And, um, and so that's my flash forward. Flashing back, Errol Flynn was a mega huge star in, uh, 1941. He actually bought the property, I think, in 1939 or 1940 up on Mulholland Drive, like, which is a mountaintop. You know, that's Southern California has these features, these mountains that jut up here and there. And this was one of those mountaintops that had a road on it called Mulholland Drive, which had recently been built as part of the New Deal. 
And um, so Flynn had made Robin Hood, you know, all these hit after hit after hit, Captain Blood, Charge of the Light Brigade, um, Robin Hood, the Dawn Patrol, Dodge City, Elizabeth and Essex, the Seahawk, and he had accumulated all this money. He, he tried to spend it as fast as he could make it, but he couldn't quite at this time. He had money, so he bought property up on Mulholland Drive, and he built a bachelor pad for himself, and it was a a sprawling ranch uh, that had a dining room with just you know, loads of windows and it had a mirrored ceiling. So it just looked huge and vast, this, just this dining room. And then it went into a living room and then that went into a bar and then that went into his den. And it was just, you know, it was spectacular. And he designed it. Basically he designed it himself (laughs) with consulting with an architect. And, um, you know, it, it was, it reflected where he was in his life as this, he was married at the time, but this to was Lily in no Demita. way right. And he was—he had no intention of living there with her. Their marriage was on the rocks. But um, so this was his bachelor pad up on on Mahan Drive, overlooking the San Fernando Valley. And it, and if you were at the right angle, you could look down on his studio, Warner Brothers. I saw the view, you know, you have some pictures of the view of it, and whoa, just looking up at the place, it was gorgeous. And yeah. um, he, Lily never, ever lived there with him, right? And he, she, he, they finally divorced, but she was pregnant with his only son, Sean. Correct. Yes, yeah. she never lived there. Uh, they had a very acrimonious splitting up divorce, and, and they... And Lily tortured him for the rest of his life. Yes. I mean, like, oh, my God. Him. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. And she didn't even bother to remarry until after he died, right? So she could oh. just stick it to him. Yeah. Twist she that knife. Pretty evil there. Well, you know, he, she was she was wrong, too. I mean, you know, he was certainly... We can talk, I don't know how graphic you want to get, but Errol was no choir boy, let's say that. (laughs) No, he was a Tasmanian devil, and that is putting it mildly. Right. Yeah, he... Well, in his book, he brags that he he had had sex with ten thousand different women. I mean, how do you know? How do you count? You know, really take a number at the at the uh, meat counter. I don't know. That's so weird. So I guess he just came up with that number, but that's a lot of tomato there. Yep, he was busy. He was very busy, and also tell us about his little kinky poo uh, places he put into the house. Yeah, well, you know, kink is how you define it personally. Um, I think it was ingenious. (laughs) So he had, his personality was such that he was a very secretive person. He was very interested in sex in all of its forms. And so in his house, he built uh, a... A secret passageway into the ladies' restroom. He had his house was had two restrooms. One was marked ladies, and one was marked gentlemen, so that he would be channeling women into a particular room, so that he could, like, go in through a panel in the bar 
and go back with his cronies, with his pals like Bruce Cabot. They'd be drunk and they'd go and they would look at the ladies and and he had it wired so he could listen to what the women that he invited to his place at his parties were saying about everybody. And this was great sport for Flynn. I mean, he had a blast having this secret passageway. And it's not the only one. He had a secret passageway that that involved his steam room. And he later, when he built an addition onto the house, he had a secret um, compartment, a secret opening above a bedroom so that he could look down through this mirror, this, this what, I don't know if it's a one-way mirror, a two-way mirror, whatever it is where you can see through it. Yeah, two-way mirror. But mm-hmm. not and they can't the see you. Right. Right. And, and so he, he had that built so that he could look down at activities. And this was when <laughs> he built that addition in, like, in, in the 1940s, added onto the house. So it wasn't there when he originally built the house. Plus... He had a secret passageway from his bedroom for quick escapes, which I can only imagine in his mind uh, he was going to be cornered by an irate husband. <laughs> like or boyfriend or Walter something. Wanger was a classic case. Walter Wanger was like obsessed with Joan Bennett and Joan Bennett. I think Flynn talks about this in My Wicked, Wicked Ways. And Joan Bennett and Flynn would meet for sex. Wow. And, Is this before the Wanger, big brouhaha? With him and her agent? This is prior to that, I imagine. I don't remember. Um, So, yeah, so I think, I swear, I haven't read My Wicked, Wicked Ways in 20 years, but I I swear that Wanger went after Flynn with a gun. So anyway, so he had a secret passageway on a built in beside his fireplace with a staircase that went down for a quick exit from his house. I mean, this is the kind of guy he was. Plus, there was another secret passageway that went along the rafters of the house from one side to the other so that he could, you know, without people knowing that he was in a different part of the house, he could get there. I mean, that's the kind of guy he was. He was just... You know, he was curious. complicated. <laughs> <laughs> curious. Yeah. Yes. Visual <laughs> and nosy. <laughs> yeah, and, and and suspicious, you know, like and and he, he liked to cover his butt, you know, by having these different escape routes and secret passageways. He had a labyrinthian mind and his house reflected that, which is why my I, I have a co author on Aeroplane slept here. His name's Mike Mazzoni. And he, he, after I sort of blazed the trail and went to this house in the spring of 1987, he then took his pregnant wife up there and photographed every room in the house. I mean, he knew, he, and he rolls and rolls of film. And, and, you know, what, two months later, the house was torn down. So, like, he documented it. And we got together and decided to write the first biography of a house in Hollywood history. <laughs> and it is a wonderful book. And you picked a great right. house. I mean, let's face yes. it. Yeah, so yes. Errol would do that. Um, I know Hedy Lamar wrote about it in her book. And, you know, how long did they get away with these peeping things? I mean, with the Hollywood crowd, they must have found out pretty quickly. But... Like the young dishes he had come over, I'm sure they had no clue. But 
Don't you think? Yeah. He, don't you think it was pretty well known after a little while that he was just peeping everywhere? I don't know how closely he guarded the secret, and you can't imagine that that when these guys are all loaded, that <laughs> they're very good at keeping, you know, yeah, at, secret like going that. through secret passageways in the wall. Like people are going to be suspicious, but for a while, I guess. It was great sport for Flynn uh, in the early years of the house. Later in the 40s when he, so he married this uh, um, cigarette stand girl. Can we get to how he met her? Because this is a very important part, topic of what Errol went through. He was charged with two counts of statutory rape. Right. And, you know, I was, I have thought recently, I, when you do a book about Errol Flynn, you know you are dealing with a particular character. Right. And it's in his nature to be a predator of young women. And in this Me Too era, there is no way to look at what he did and just, like, laugh it off anymore. No. Uh, I mean, so is, many of these guys, they would have been cancel culture. They would have just oh, maybe yeah. in jail, whatever. But he yeah. would not and have had a career me, by, any, by any stretch of the imagination. And, there, and my publisher had talked for, for some years about doing, reissuing Errol Flynn Slept Here, like in a, a large soft cover version. And I just don't know that that's going to be possible because of the change in perspectives. Because Flynn was very attracted to young girls. Like, he, he, if they were 17 or 18, that was fine with him. Uh, there was something about his development that was arrested and he he liked young girls he'd be 28 29 30 and he liked them you know 16 17 18 uh then that got him in trouble because he was charged with statutory rape of two wannabe actresses who were in no way shape or form innocent creatures (laughs) but but they were underage and he was arrested for it. And it was part of a big political thing where uh, the DA's office was trying to get money out of Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers wouldn't cooperate. And so the DA filed charges against one of its biggest stars. And, and it went to trial. And it was a very famous page one trial. Yeah. Where Errol Flynn and- uh, was, was defended by Jerry Geisler, the famous lawyer. And... Um, he was acquitted, but uh, during the course of that trial, he'd be going to the Hall of Justice every day in Los Angeles and buying cigarettes every day because he was a heavy smoker. And that's how he met Nora Eddington, who was 18 years old. To me, and, that's hysterical, well, really, well, when you think about very, it. He, doesn't he, I, I didn't he know he could have gotten caught on that? My God. Let's talk well, about was, statutory. She yeah, she was. She was legal. She was 18. Right. But, but he kept her, like, under wraps for two years. Like, two full years he kept her under wraps. Uh, it, and I got to know Nora very well. She seemed uh, to really love him. Oh, yeah. It didn't keep her from cheating on him. <laughs> oh, she cheated? Why, why not? He cheated on her all the time. Well, yeah. I mean, that's Hollywood at that time. Well, I'm not sure it's still Hollywood. But, um, but yeah, she cheated on him with Dick Hames, who was a... I think just a very homely guy. I don't yes, know how. Yes, Rita he, Hayworth he married too. There was yes, this big thing I don't about understand. That. 
Uh, but he, anyway. He was supposed to be a, a creep, too, not a charming fellow. You know, so I don't know. I guess he had his his ways. But one thing I want to add, the, the trial took a lot out of Errol. And you could see in his face the strain and whatever. It was humiliating for him because it was in the papers every day, front page headlines, news, tab, you know, this, the scandal sheets. And one of the girls said that when they had sex, he kept his shoes and socks on. And I'm sure everybody in the court laughed. He was horrified. And of course, that was on the front page. But <laughs> I don't know why that did. And the nickname in like, and the saying in like Flynn was started through that um, trial, correct? Yeah. And see, first he needed to survive. You know, he, he talked in his book about how he had a plane waiting. If he was found guilty, hmm. he was going to flee the country. Uh, he was terrified that he was going to be found guilty. Um, and so the first thing he had to do was get through the trial and he got acquitted. And then he found out what a laughingstock he had become. He, he didn't really understand the impact of these page one headlines and these salacious details of his carryings on on his boat, the Sirocco, and, mm-hmm. and with this girl at this party in uh, Bel Air um, until the trial was over. And then, then in like Flynn, you're absolutely right. We still say it today. Mm-hmm. And it started with, you know, it, its original meaning was scoring with a young girl thanks to the Errol Flynn trial of 1943. Scoring with a young girl. And while he's being tried for young girls, he's, he, he's keeping those eyes wide open. Linda Christian is living with him at the time, too. I think he had to get rid of her. But it was a hard time. He'd go home and drink and whatever, but he always drank. And then he, I think he knew what a, you know, like he became a pariah maybe for just three, four months. I don't know how long, but he was going to have a party and nobody showed up. Yeah. You can see the deterioration of Errol Flynn beginning with that trial. If you just look at his movies, you know, Mm -hmm. um, every successive picture, Uncertain Glory, uh, Objective Burma, San Antonio, Never Say Goodbye. Every year he looks worse. And, you know, stars declined, certainly, but he started drinking very, very heavily to dull the pain. And then he started taking drugs. You know, he he tried everything and he took everything (laughs) and and he was drunk more often than not on the set. And all of it traces back to no longer being on top of the world like he was when he built Mulholland. And uh, just not being able to look in the mirror. He said that. You know, he said, I, 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 don't, I don't look in mirrors. And when I do, I don't like what I see. Um, he had this jagged question mark uh, embroidered into his handkerchiefs and put on his stationery that was just like, why? You know, why me? Why did this happen? Bitterness unhappiness you know that was the second half of Flynn's life it was it was after 1943 and most of the years that he spent in that house were extremely unhappy tortured uh, 
years. And and when we talk later about the paranormal side mm-hmm. of Mulholland Farm, I think that's what imprinted itself on that house was this titanic unhappiness. Yes, he would go through deep bouts of de- long bouts of depression and allegedly had tried to kill himself twice. Yeah, he talked about that very frankly in My Wicked Wicked Ways of sitting on the edge of his bed with a loaded gun and putting it in his mouth and not being able to pull a trigger. And that was, I, Mike and I think that was around 1945, you know, around the time he was making uh, Objective Burma. And so he makes this great war movie, Objective Burma. It, it is so good. It holds up today so well. And even then, after he makes this great movie, and he, and he really cleaned up his act for this. You know, they went and they shot it in various places, and, and he really became a paratrooper. He, he went through hell making this movie. And then when it was released, um, the British took offense that there were American paratroopers supposedly in Burma when it was there weren't any within a thousands of miles. It was the British mm-hmm. who had had, you know, retaken Burma. And so Lord Mountbatten went after Errol Flynn. You oh, know, boy. when he was when Flynn was down, <laughs> Lord Mountbatten is, you know, kicking him in the ribs. So, you know, it just reinforced with Flynn that nothing mattered anymore. He couldn't do anything right. Right. When you're try? up, you're up and then you go down and and people just uh, like to kick up the kind of dead horse you know yeah. what it, one of yeah. his quotes was you know they they love the dead in hollywood they have people living no they don't but all of a sudden the dead are great one of the things in the book is fascinating this he had a very um deep affection for john barrymore who as you guys know was an actor big but alcoholic big time alcoholic i don't know if he took drugs did he? I, I think it was more booze, just booze for him. Yeah, I believe it was booze. Who knows? But yeah, that was what his rep was, you know, yeah. the drinking. And Errol loved him. And mm-hmm. he died. But he made it to 60, surprisingly, right? I think he was about 60 years old. But the rumor was, as a trick, they played a trick on, you want to tell the rumor? Yeah, that uh, some of Flint's pals stole the body from Pierce Brothers Mortuary and drove it up to Mulholland and sat him in a chair. And Errol walked in and saw Barrymore and uh, and freaked out, you know, and screamed and, and ran out. And I don't know if he, though, even various versions have him diving out a window or. <laughs> I would have been terrified. I, it would creep me yeah. out. Oh, yeah. But Drew Barrymore said it was true. It's a true story. It's crazy enough to be true. And I think that's the conclusion Mike and I came to, is that there's enough smoke to believe that there was a fire in this case. I believe it was true, too. And I can't even imagine walking in. And and he was grossed out because I guess, you know, of course, his eyes were closed and he's all this unnatural. I don't think he had been embalmed yet, all that other icky stuff. But I can't even imagine. Ooh. Yuck. And close to close to this time frame, uh, Barrymore was like down and out, and Flynn let him stay at Mulholland in this bedroom at the top of the spiral staircase mm-hmm. that was there. There was this little, you know, the house was so odd. It had only one staircase, and it was this nautical kind of a narrow 
circular staircase that went up to the second floor. And, and right off of there was uh, the bedroom that Barrymore stayed in. And Flynn, Flynn was freaked out by the fact that Barrymore would not take time to go downstairs and use the bathroom. He would just pee out the window <laughs> and take the varnish off the windowsill. And that, and, and so, you know, we, we documented the windowsill, you know, the, here's the windowsill. That... <laughs> Barrymore peed here. Was there a right. sign? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so when that thing happened with the, uh, supposedly happened with the stealing of the body. Barrymore had just basically been there. So, I mean, that would have doubled the horror uh, <laughs> in Flynn. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that he said that Barrymore was just terrible. And um, was he drinking in his later days, Barrymore? I mean, what oh, the hell yeah. at this point? You know, you know you're croaking pretty much. Yeah, you, if you look at his later movies like uh, The Invisible Woman and oh, he made a couple of, right at the very end, uh, the, yeah, Playmates, um, you can see he is tanked right there on screen. Well, he also, what was the one he was going to do? Or did he do it? Um, they want, He wanted to do The Man Who Came to Dinner. And it, I don't know if you've ever seen it. I think you can find it on YouTube, everybody, and Robert, if you've not seen it. And it's uh, Barry. Um, it is Barry Moore's audition for it, and he is hammy and uh, exaggerated. And they gave Monty Woolley the job, but he, you know, it was, and he was drunk. Obviously, you could tell that too. I will check that out, Grace. That's you got one on me there. I had not heard that. Or yeah, seen it. and it's really sad. Very, very sad. And so, yeah, so Errol's there. I heard, I, you know, I never heard any good things about Bruce Cabot in their relationship. Mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. they said um, you could never count on him. He was a user. He was all this stuff. But they did allegedly catch him in bed with somebody. And they watched him from above doing the wild thing. Yes, and that was... That was in that bedroom that was on, in the edition that came with uh, Errol's first daughter by Nora Eddington, Deirdre. When she was born, that's when they put the edition on, and that's when that supposedly happened. That yeah, and, and yes, Bruce Cabot was a jerk. Yeah, you know, he sounded I say horrible. That kindly. Yeah, and he turned on Flynn. Uh, yes. He, yeah. Oof, he was just a real worm. That's yeah. why, and he looks like a wormy creep. You know what I mean? <laughs> and he also kidnapped King Kong. How dare you, Bruce Cabot? Yeah. Yeah. yeah yep. And I apologize to the dead Bruce Bennett, who was in Mildred Pierce, because I used to get those two confused. No mas. No more. I don't. So Good, because Bruce Bennett was a stand-up guy. Yeah, that's what I know. read. So I felt really oh, guilty yeah. for thinking that Bruce Cabot was Bruce Bennett, because he was a really nice person and a good person. And this one was just a skeeve. I heard he used to drive around high schools looking at the young girls <laughs> I don't know. Oh, yeah, that sounds that sounds right. Yeah, yeah. Well, yuck. Anyway, Errol was there, and he 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 married Nora, who you spoke to, and um, they had two children together, right? Two girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, Deirdre and Rory. And they all adored him, Sean, Deirdre, Rory. They adored Errol, and he, vice versa. He adored his children. 
Yeah, he was a decent dad and charming as hell. I mean, like he's Errol Flynn for crying out loud, and you know. So yeah, they they to this day, you know, they. Uh, I haven't. I I completely lost touch with Deirdre, but I'm Facebook friends with Rory, and uh, and yeah, she's thriving, you know, and still honoring the memory of her dad. Good for her. You know, he he. Some part of him, it just kind of touches me. I don't know that he he just may thought he was happy, but I don't think he ever really was a happy person. And he also wrote some books, and he wanted to write another book, but he didn't get good reviews or whatever, and that really devastated him as well because he wanted to be a writer. Yeah, like it's just like um, Audrey Hepburn never had any desire to be an actor. She wanted to be a dancer. Errol Flynn really did not have any desire to be an actor. He wanted to be a writer. He wanted to be an author. And he, he wrote, he has a fair body of work between uh, newspaper articles he wrote in his early years to uh, magazine articles that he wrote for Photoplay and other magazines in the 30s to his two novels, which were pretty good. Uh, really, you know, I mean... Critically raved, no, but popular books. Uh, you oh, can they still did find sell. They did. Yeah, they did sell, yes. And then, of course, the biography, which he had a ghostwriter of, because he was probably really messed up while he was talking about himself, right? Yeah, so that was Earl Conrad, and, and I knew our Earl pretty well, too. And, and he, he wrote a book uh, called... He wrote a book called something, but it was the it was the his memoir of working and of creating my wicked wicked ways with Errol Flynn. I bet that's in interesting. Did you yeah? Did you read it? Oh yeah, I read that book. You know, forty years ago, whatever. When I when I knew Earl, and we talked a lot about those days. Yeah, and they must have been fascinating. What what made you so fascinated? Because you've done so many books on classic Hollywood did you always have a fascination with it when from a young age or it just developed later on it developed I Flynn was the catalyst really uh that that drew me into needing to know about Hollywood and and uh needing to know the history and and when I go uh to Hollywood when I visit when I first went there, I felt like I had been there before. I mean, like I knew places that I shouldn't have been able to find and things looked from, you know, so I don't know why it is that I, when I was a kid, my dad tried to get me to watch classic movies with him and it was like torture, you know. But, <laughs> I started uh, watching classic movies with my father. Some well, of them were torture, but some I absolutely adored. Yeah, so my parents were great uh, fans of, like my mother was, terribly in love with Clark Gable and uh, my dad you know had his favorite actresses and whatever and Sheridan and, and and such but you know it, it wasn't until college when it hit me and it hit me hard and um, you know what is it seven books later you have a vast knowledge of Hollywood I have to say that because whenever I've read your books there's always asides and different things about different people and um, really your knowledge is fab um, oh, thanks. You're welcome. And so he he was married to Nora. And did she leave him for Dick Haynes? Or did he hook up with Patricia Wymore first? 
No, she did leave him for Dick. I had to think back. Okay, it's been a long time, but yeah, she had this affair, and it and that really hurt Flynn. Even though Flynn was, you know, cheating on her every day. I tell it's you, different when it's a woman cheating. Well, that's know? with most men. You know, <laughs> I can do this, that, and that, and right. five hundred broads and cheat on you five hundred times. You do it once, and yeah, you're dead. You're dead to me. Yeah. You're dead. Right? Ego, yeah. ego, big time. Nora wrote a book called Errol and Me. Um, oh, that's it. That was um, uh, Earl Conrad's book was called Errol Flynn, A Memoir. Nora's book was called Errol and Me, and she documented, this was written right after Flynn's death, when mm-hmm. Flynn's death was big news because he died so young and he had been so popular. And so a number of books came out right then, and one of them was Errol and Me, in which Nora talks about Errol's drug use, about his physical abuse of her um, about the rages he would fly into at this point in his life because of his just vast unhappiness uh, and so yeah she got away by marrying Dick Hames and um, and left Flynn alone on his mountaintop at which point he had a party like that I that Mike and I document in the book this 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 Big party with mouse races and, and all kinds of things. Oh, it's outdoors. Uh, it's that really beautiful one right. that they had outside. Yes. And and that was the talk of Hollywood. Uh, and then he had, right around that time, he had a young actor move in with him. The young actor was trying to break in. And um, his name was Ivan Hayes. And Ivan Hayes became Steve Hayes, and he became a writer. He wrote screenplays, and he had bit parts in King Richard and the Crusaders, a bunch of pictures. And he and I became friends, and he was instrumental in the writing of this book, too. And um, then Errol went to—he got some work from MGM on a loan out, and he made two pictures, the second of which was called Kim. And around that time is when— uh, he came back to America after making Kim and that Foresight Woman. He made a picture called Rocky Mountain. That's when he met Patrice Wymore, his third wife. Oh, but um, prior to that, he was with that princess lady, but he got rid of her fast. Tim was with Patrice. Yeah, yeah. that did not work out yeah. at all. She was not his kind of gal. <laughs> she didn't look like she was much fun. No. Kind of a bore snore. So he took up with Patrice, and he did have one more child. He had another daughter with Patrice. Yes, that was Arnella. And um, and so if we're talking about the history of Mulholland Farm, we're near the last chapter with Flynn because Patrice did move in there and she actually put her office in the room above the bedroom that had the two the mirrors. mirrors. <laughs> yeah. So that was her office for a short time. But they had to flee the country because Flynn got into tax trouble. And it was based on the blood-sucking of, Lily, of Lily, taking his money Tiger relentlessly, Lil. yeah, and, and just and sticking so, it to him. I mean, she really did, and yeah, I, she you did. know, it, it just—it seemed like she took pleasure, and he, he tried to make things work. He tried to get the money together. He tried. Wasn't he also embezzled by one of his friends who was looking after his money? Which yes. sounds like a normal thing in Hollywood. You can't trust any yeah. of these creeps. So he went to Europe. He left Mulholland behind. And what I'm really surprised about is that we've never heard one 
single bit of uh, news that it was ever used as a location for pictures. And it was like a natural to be a location, you know, like Highway Patrol or some TV series should have used uh, Mulholland Farm as a location. And I'm shocked that it was never used. But it sat empty for a long time. He tried to rent it out. And then finally, it sold. The property sold after Flynn's death to this uh, um, country country gospel dude. Yeah. Yeah. A a gospel dude, very well put, named Stuart Hamblin, who was a radio personality. And uh, he he, uh, was a singer. And he moved his brood into Mulholland. He was like the polar opposite. No, it's so funny. You see these pictures and all these kids on the thing. I'm like, they, they'd be dating Harold in 10 years. You know, you see all these kids, tons right. of kids. Having the, Easter egg hunts. Yes, yeah, so you know. wholesome. And, you know, just this whole thing. And the wife, she takes out the bar and she puts in an organ instead. She's very religious. Yeah. And um, yeah. they were just a family that lived there. And, 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 and the funny thing is that the, um, the room that, that Bruce Cabot had sex in with Flynn watching and giggling upstairs became the recording booth for Stuart Hamblin singing gospel tunes. And, you know, Errol Flynn must have been turning over in his grave. <laughs> turning over. Yeah. So they moved there and then they lived there quite a while with their brood, but they wanted to, you know, down... Like, I guess they said there were helicopters around and it was getting bad. And the next person that bought the joint was... Rick Nelson. So, hubba, so hubba. the Hamlins... So we should mention that Errol Flynn didn't just have a house up there. He had a compound. He had a stable for horses and animals. And he had a casino that was a standalone building for his, you know, poker games and things, but he called it his casino. And that, all of that was just integral to the life of the Hamblins, you know, because they really were like country people. They, right. That's, and, and so that eight acres stayed all together uh, while the Hamblins were there. And then Rick Nelson bought the place because he was sort of a ranch kind of a guy too. And so he moved in there with his kids, um, Tracy, his daughter, and Gunner and Matthew, his twin sons, who Did, later became Nelson. Well, they, they're beautiful, long, platinum blonde hair. Right. <laughs> and no shirts. Back in the day. Yeah. And um, he was married to this woman, Kristen, Kristen Harmon? Harmon, right. Did she ever move in there? Because I, I know they were going through a horrible marriage at the time, just like Errol at that point. Did she move in that I, house? I don't remember that. Uh, you asked me a stumper right there. Yeah, um, I don't. I don't know that she. I think she might have for a month, and I think she's the one who painted the rafters white or something. And she was trying to she t- spend a fortune redoing it, but she never really lived there. And they got divorced. Um, right. But and yeah, it seemed that Rick was very much into the Errol Flynn legend and living in Errol Flynn's home. He seemed to really kind of revel in it. And he also used the uh, the biggest room that um, Errol used was the den, and I believe that was the same for Rick. And um, the thing with Rick was, you know, 
the famous garden party thing that he did. I mean, I think there mm-hmm. were like fifties doo-wop people there, and they were still dressed in the fifties doo-wop thing. And and Rick comes out, and he's wearing like bell bottoms, and he's got his long feathered hair, and he's groovy, you know. And he sings, and they he tries to sing different music, and they boo at him. And so he writes a wonderful song after the garden party, which is really yeah. And I and I t- I relate that story because I think it's it really reflects the soul of this artist who moved into that house. Yes. Uh, Nelson was a huge fan of Errol Flynn, as his father, Ozzy, had been. More than he friends, um, Ozzy had hung out with him a bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and Rick was a sad person. I mean, the the breakup with Kristen was horrible. She sounded, she was a little lily. I don't know if she, she might, I don't know if she had a drug problem. She or, did. She, she did. Because I know she, the little boy was taken away by her brother, who was Mark Harmon. I think you guys all know him. NCIS, I think he's done it for 40 years. <laughs> I don't know how long yeah. that's gone on. I've never watched it. Um, but uh, yeah, so she did. And so it was an ugly breakup. And Rick had his, but the kids like to come uh, live with him and be with him. Well, see, that's the uh, the Nelson twins were were so helpful talking about those years, and um, that's where they formed their band was in Errol Flynn's bedroom. How cool! That's where, yeah, that's where Nelson started, uh, and uh, and Tracy lived there too, but. Now we really do need to get into the paranormal side because it it greatly affected. It still haunts Tracy Nelson today. Oh, uh, yeah. If, if you, you mention Errol Flynn to her, she will go off on you. Wow. <laughs> because it was pretty interesting. Why don't you guys get to the paranormal part? Because it is so good and scary, too. I mean, but um, Rick is still alive. When the paranormal activity starts, yes. Um, it, so they moved into this place, and Rick was on the road a lot, and Rick had money troubles. Oh boy, so two hundred and thirty-five house- days a year or something. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. Just trying to make ends meet, mm-hmm. um, and so Tracy was alone a lot there, and she encountered a ghost. Uh, the ghost of Errol Flynn, and it had interactions with her uh, that freaked her out. And inappropriate because she was a young girl. <laughs> you know? Well, there, well, there you go. Um, <laughs> so I read that in a in a book. Lori Jacobson, I've had her on twice. Yes, yeah. yes, that's where I first read that story, yeah. and that was long before I had any knowledge of. Uh, of anything paranormal there, except my own experience while I was there that one day. Uh, but I never told anybody about because I thought it was my imagination. And then I read about um, Tracy Nelson. And still I was like, okay, um, you know, if I don't want to commit that to print because people doubt the credibility of my, of my book, of our book, Mike and Me. But then the more people I talked to, who had been to Mulholland Farm, they all had these experiences, including the the Hamblin family, who you would think as evangelical Christians would be the last to buy into this. But Stuart Hamblin's wife, Susie, who I met, Mike and I interviewed when she was like 100, like literally 100 wow. years old, um, she told us that the night Errol Flynn died, 
he died in Vancouver, British Columbia. But the night that he died, all the pipes in the house vibrated, vibrated wow. and freaked them out. And that was just at the beginning. Oh, my God. Of, of yeah, how, he died at 50. Yeah. Uh, and they said his, I don't know, I've read twice somewhere, his insides were that of a 75 or 85-year-old man, whatever, he was 50, and his his life and his lifestyle. Uh, he, he didn't even make 60 like Barrymore, 50 years old, and he was almost unrecognizable, bloated and terrible. Yeah. So that's amazing. The pipes start rattling? Yeah, and so I... The Hamblins would each put me in touch with different Hamblins. Harv Presnell was married into the Hamblin family. If you remember him from, you know, A Distant Trumpet and a bunch of musicals. And then he was on a TV series called The Pretender, I think. But Harv Presnell and I had a great conversation on the phone, and he remembered the ghost. Uh, and It was and Errol? Various, huh? They knew it was Errol? No, no, no. I think there was more than one ghost there. Mm-hmm. But but they all reported, you know, like lying in bed and shadowy figures and Tracy Nelson uh, and one of the twins, Gunner, uh, would be lying in bed and they would feel somebody sit on the bed next to them. Eek. And Yeah, they would see Gunner saw faces in the mirror. Um, so all of these things just made Mike and me realize, you know what, we got to have a chapter about this because it is so ubiquitous that, that all of these people have had these experiences, including me. Tell so, us about yours. Mine was about the least interesting of all of these. But it's you witnessed it and you felt it and you I saw did. it, so it's cool. I did, and I saw it and I felt it. And I was standing outside of the farm, and I was there in the dead quiet and I was just looking at the house and up in one of the second floor rooms I saw a a figure and then I saw a face looking out at me and, and who was at the house me. who was with you no no oh you were by there by yourself there no one there the, the place was locked up at that point and no one was there what was the face and like was was it like a shadow or it, it was indistinguishable i mean i couldn't say that that was errol flynn or whatever but it was a man's face and it was looking out at me and it leaned down in the window and looked out at wow me. did you and then it vanished did and, you scram and, and, <laughs> no i didn't scram i i i thought it's light play it's shadow play i'm making this up you know and i just filed it away until you heard everybody else's stories yeah. So when Tracy, Tracy seemed to be the one who experienced most of the uh, paranormal activity of the Nelson family. Um, mm-hmm. How did she know the ghost was Errol? One of the ghosts was Errol. She said, she told a story and, and she was on, she's been on like TV ghost shows yes. talking about this. But she said that um, at one point that Errol Flynn toasted her. Uh, toasted the new year or something. I think it was maybe it was the year before her father died that Errol Flynn toasted the new year to her, held up a glass and spoke words to her. Wow. And then her father died on New Year's Eve. Oh, 
Wasn't there yeah. something that they heard all this banging and stuff, and, and Rick would just say, oh, that's Errol Flynn. Um, yeah. Rick had said, that's yeah. Errol, whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rick had also, in all his journeys, you know, and, and his money woes, he buys this, what was it, 1944? Sort of like a plain cl- uh, Carol uh, Lombard was in, right? Yeah, it was, it was at BC3. That's what he traveled around in. And because they were tremendously reliable planes. Really? You know? Oh, yeah. Even 40-something years later? Yeah, there are still DC-3s in service. Wow. Yeah. But they had yeah. a lot of close calls. They did, but the, the, there was an engine failure that brought that plane down. It was a fire caused by a heater that they had in the, in the cabin to stay warm in the air because they were traveling in winter. And that's what brought the plane down was a fire. Yeah. They landed in like a, a field, a cow patch or something, cow home. And uh, they land, they hit trees and stuff like that. And then they're... Yeah. But the interesting thing is two people did survive. It was the pilots. They survived, but it was him, his girlfriend, and the other people in his band. And they were so young. And it was... Uh, New Year's Eve, which is very strange. That and it and somebody I don't know if it was Gunner. Maybe he said that Errol was trying to warn Rick. Uh, it's possible. Um, I don't know. It, it is a creepy, strange story that Tracy tells. Yeah, I have no no reason to doubt her because the body of evidence is that something. Paranormal was happening there, totally. What's going on in that very strange, um, negatively influenced house that had once belonged to Errol Flynn? Yeah, and with Tracy, she ended up marrying, and it it was her ex-husband, but he for not one minute believed anything that, he doesn't believe in the paranormal. He said, "Uh, it was your imagination, whatever. But I think this is after Rick died, and... He went into the house. They were going to go pick up some stuff for Tracy's. And he came running out and saying, I'm never going back in that house. I wonder what happened to him. There you go. <laughs> so he was a disbeliever, didn't believe his wife, thought it was all made up. Boom. Then they smelled cheap perfume. Yes, <laughs> they smelled cheap perfume. And they got some psychic in there who said it was some trap solos in love with Errol and Whatever, but I, I didn't buy that one. I think it was probably somebody else. I don't know. And he and the woman said, "Oh, that part hadn't been built yet, so she couldn't go there." Oh, really? Their spirit rules. Okay, you can't go in this part of the house because it wasn't built yet. I did not know there was spiritual dead people rules like that. So I didn't really buy that very much. But I'm sure there were ghosties, and you saw it, which is so me. I would have been fascinated but i would have been like running for the hills <laughs> out of there man forget it i'd be burning rubber with my feet um so gunner really didn't see it oh no gunner saw it a lot when he looked in the mirror and saw face faces were they just like shadow faces or no the way he described it to me you know the, he was seeing faces faces not uh and I don't know. I don't remember. It's been so long. Was that the place? The details. The bedroom where there was a two-way mirror. Yes, I believe that was a, a downstairs incident. Yes. And then you know, after Rick died, um, they finally fled. The two 
to uh, the two brothers, they, mm-hmm. I don't know, it was sort of like a Amityville horror. Go. Oh, but for some reason, they felt something evil and ominous and dark, and they booked it out of there. Mm-hmm. It was yeah, just the, then, the presence they felt, right? And then the house was empty. Uh, and that's when first I was there, and then Mike was there. And, uh, and then soon after that, somebody bought it, and they were going to rehab it, and they realized the thing that, I realized when I was there and I smelled the dry rot when I walked past the dining room was that this place was beyond repair. There was no way to save it. And so it was torn down unceremoniously down to the pad. Um, and there are pictures of that in the yeah. book. You know, the yeah. And it, glorious it, it happened very quickly, right? It was like boom, boom. Now you got it. Now you don't. Yeah, pretty much. They, it, they were stripping out the insides uh, when Mike was there, there was a a, uh, a crew there, and they were taking out the paneling to resell it. You know, taking out the fixtures, and and he actually asked if he could take a, a piece of crystal from a chandelier, and they gave it to him. And he actually took two because he gave me one, and I still have it. Cool. Um, yeah. So- and so. Uh, so, yeah, so that place was deconstructed and then right. it was torn down. And now, you know, all, that whole Errol Flynn estate, there's now like an Errol Flynn drive there. And, and it was all carved up into million-dollar mansions. Yeah, uh, I know Justin so. Timberlake lived there. And I wonder if they mm-hmm. had any hauntings there once the house was gone. I and sure wonder that. Errol That's moved what I would on. Ask him if, or if, if you... We ever. Yeah, because when you were there... And this is before you saw the face in the window. Did you feel any kind of presence? Because I've gone to places where I feel darkness and I want to get the hell out of there. I have yeah. entered homes. I've entered or just met a person and they're dark. Um, did you feel anything like that? You know, nobody's ever asked me that. And I, if I think back now to how I felt that day, I would say yes. I would say yes. I, I felt I felt the heaviness of this place uh, as I explored it. And and I don't know if that had anything to do with the passing of, the recent passing at that time of Rick Nelson, or if it had to do with some haunting or whatever. But yeah, I mean, the place was a sad place. I didn't even know at that time that Rick Nelson had lived there. You know, I only knew it was a, a, a vacant house, and that's what I based my exploration on. I had no knowledge of Rick Nelson. Uh, living there um, but it did feel sad yeah I, I just don't like I said there's part of me that had uh, has a, a sad feeling for him but you wonder so he had anger and so you think that anger energy he was like an angry liver in that house or maybe he thought people were usurpers maybe he was mad that the Christians lived there and she took down his bar you know <laughs> Hey, man, where's the bar? Yeah, so now you're talking about Flynn, and yes, I mean, he was such a a dark presence. And, you know, there were two Errol Flynns. There was the Errol Flynn up to the rape trial, and there was the Errol Flynn after the rape trial. Right. And they were vastly different human beings. And it's very sad, and his ending was sad. And um, then his son, Sean, you want to talk about that one? Yeah, so Sean uh, was every bit as unconventional as his father. He tried to make 
pictures, and he made a number of pictures, including one called The Son of Captain Blood, and he played an Avenger in a different picture. And So he had this career, uh, but uh, he was drawn to Vietnam as a photojournalist. So he, he was a photographer working for Time or something. Uh-huh. I don't know. He was working as a photojournalist in, I think, Cambodia, and he was captured by the Oh, the Khmer Rouge or somebody. Um, it's never been exactly figured out what happened to him, but he was, he never was seen again. And I guess they executed him and buried him, you know, in an unmarked grave. And, and so that remains a mystery. There have been books written about it. Two of the missing is one of them. And then more recently, there was a inherited risk or whatever uh, that was written. So that was the sad ending of Sean. And that's so uh, sad. And Lily never gave up until her death looking and searching for her son. Oh, she loved that kid. Yeah. And yeah. And, and so that, yeah, that hit her very hard. I don't know if there was karma there or what for the way she had treated Errol, but yeah, that ended badly. So sad. So it's sort of like, you know, it's, it's the story of the house, but there's so much more we didn't go into. And I would advise you guys go to uh, Amazon. I'll send you his... Um, his uh, Amazon page. You can check it out. You can get it on Kindle and the Olivia and Olivia and Errol book. And of course, Audrey Hepburn, warrior, Uh, Audrey Hepburn, Dutch girl, Carol Lombard, fireball, James Stewart, mission accomplished. Is that the name of that one? No, it's just mission mission. Mission. And they're all fabulous. And you know, they're just tons of stories about old Hollywood and all of them. And I love all of the books. I've read all of your books. So <laughs> that's, are you writing this a new one? You're now? my favorite. Yeah. Um, I, I have started down the path of another book. It's very different. And so we'll have to see. It's not about a particular person. It's about an event in Hollywood history. Oh, can't uh, wait. And so, yeah, we'll see. Sounds good. So definitely when that comes out, you're coming on again. So everybody, we had the fifth visit of the delightful, and thank you so much for coming on, Robert Mattson, and talking about Errol Flint's house and the boogeymen that lived there. I would have been scared. Poor Tracy. But I love that her husband ran out of there and said, I'm not coming in after not believing her. That's really something I like a lot. Anyway, um, thank you, thank you, thank you. Again, thank you so much, Robert, for being here. And everybody, thank you so much for listening. I so appreciate every single one of you. And you too, Robert. So Thank you, Grace. Check out <laughs> Errol Flynn Slept Here. It's a really good book. You can get it on your Kindle. Thanks, everybody. And thank you, Robert. Bye, everybody. Listen to the stories of-